This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. One minute past nine. You are tuned to 102.73 Triple R's time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. My name's Bron Burton. And I would be Dr Beach. How are you, Dr Beach? I'm very well on this beautiful foggy morning. <laughs> Winter's finally arrived. Well, yeah, but fog's a little bit unusual. At this time of the year, is it? Well, I, I don't I know. But I, mean, I don't seem to remember as much fog as there was in my youth, but you know, there was more of everything in my youth, wasn't there? Yeah, the good old days, eh? <laughs> the good old days. <laughs> anyway, it's nice and foggy out there if you haven't cracked the blinds yet and had a look and when you do you'll be greeted with this fog fog mist i know that it's created some havoc the um inaugural tasmanian community cup is happening today and there's been a problem with some flights leaving melbourne to head down to hobart i heard that the community cup was i was about to say global now but um (laughs) national it will be it will be global if uh, jason evans has anything to do with it you strapping on the boots this year (laughs) No, I'm making lots of cupcakes and um, being team mum. Was it June 26? Yep, June 26, mm-hmm. Elstonwick Park. Fantastic. And <laughs> I noticed that you can get, like on the ads for it, you can pre-tick your pre-book your tickets. tickets. Yes, you can, but you can get them at the gate too. Good. Hey, thank you very much to Tim for Vital Bits. Thank you very much uh, to Bush Gothic and what a lovely little piece they did called Little Fish. I'm going to track that down because we're going to play that a lot on this program. And that was a perfect prelude to one of the pieces I want to do later in the show. Excellent. In fact, I wrote down before I left my form of transport the exact line so I can quote it later on. Brilliant. Yeah. Unplanned. Unplanned. They're always the best. So thank you very much, Tim. Uh, And happy World Environment Day. It is World Environment Day today. Thanks, Bron. I was wondering when you were going to say that to me. (laughs) Were you feeling neglected? I was. And happy uh, World Oceans Day for for Tuesday, which is the 8th of June, as uh, it's always World Environment Day on the 5th and always World Oceans Day on the 8th. So um, with the program today, we're going to kick off with some marine science. Dr Beach? Uh, Yeah, I want to look at cephalopods. Cephalopods. Oh, cool. Yeah, largest invertebrates, squid, octopuses and their relatives. Numbers are increasing and estimation of the largest size of the giant squid. And I'll be doing that in about ten, well, five, six minutes. Fantastic. I'm very fond of cephalopods. They are cool creatures. Mollusks in general, but particularly cephalopods. They are super cool. Well, lucky because there's a lot more of them about. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Some local news for World Environment Day and World Oceans Day, uh, largely focused on plastics. Um, And... 
Uh, we're actually going to invite them into the studio shortly, but at about 9.30 we're going to be speaking with um, Richard Reiner from Monash University about some penguins, research into penguins that he and his group have been involved with, uh, the, the St Kilda penguins and the Phillip Island penguins. And uh, Neil Blake is going to join us shortly as well. I'm Our kind of backtracking a little bit. Yes, Baykeeper, to, uh, to celebrate World Oceans Day in particular. And um, big focus this year on plastics in, in the oceans and the great damage that they're causing globally. Uh, well, yeah, and there's... I mean, let's let's talk about it right now. Oh, can I I'll just finish? The last segment that we've got is with Dave Donnelly and he's going to be talking to us about whales in Western Port and an event coming up next weekend, Winter Whales in Western Port. So it's a celebration of uh, whales in Western Port and... I have to confess, and I'm, I'm guessing I'm not the only one, that uh, I've known about dolphins being around in Western Port, but actually having whales is, is a new thing for me to get my head around. Yeah, seagrass, dolphins, occasional shark, lots of surfers. You don't hear don't much about whales? There. No, you don't. No. So they've got uh, an event taking place next weekend and they've, uh, there's some, a screening of a great movie which Dave's going to talk to us about as well. There you go. Should we do a quick weather? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, it's foggy out there, as I said, and today's going to be a maximum of 16 degrees. Uh, high chance of rain, 70%. Light winds becoming southwest, 15 to 25 kilometres per hour late in the evening. Um, tomorrow, 15 degrees, shower or two. 9 to 15, Tuesday 10 to 16, Wednesday 12 to 16, shower 2 developing, bit of a shower 2 on Tuesday, shower 2 Thursday. So it's winter, but not quite as cold as it was last week. No. We're not getting down to those morning lows of 5, 6 or 7. Do you prefer fog or, uh, or frost? I like the lot. Yeah, me too. I'll, I'll have the lot. <laughs> as long as it's winter. Winter is finally here. I love that line. Not quite from, though. It's not quite here. Oh, you're going to say Game of Thrones? No, 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 not Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that cedar, that body part that felt, was it? Um, oh, which one was it? The one with John Cleese and you had Mr Creosote and he was ordering food and he oh, wanted yes. it, everything. And, and he said, and many of life, he said, I'll have a lot. And John Cleese said, a wise choice, monsieur. Yes, indeed. Just before, I was wondering where you were going with that. Just before he exploded. I was thinking, which scene are you talking That's about? That's a family favourite, that scene. Do you want to go first with some news or shall I? Um, you go. All right. Yeah, so you mentioned um, World Environment Day and um, microplastics, big focus on that. There has been a bit of press in The Guardian, at least, I noticed, um, about a paper which appeared on in the June 3 issue of Science. This is fresh off the press, of course. Environmentally relevant concentrations of microplastic particles influence larval fish ecology. A couple of Swedes, we have Peter Ekloff and Una Lonstedt, have taken um, European perch little ones and put them in tanks with all sorts of different sized, well, no microplastics, so little bits of plastic of different concentrations, uh, 90 micrometres in size. So a micrometre is 10 to the minus 6 metres, so you've got 1,000 microns in a millimetre, so 90 micrometres is... Very small. Under, yeah, very small, but under a tenth of a millimetre. Um, put them in the tanks with a little larval fish and essentially they've shown that it stuffs up everything mm. uh, including hatching rates of eggs um, the way in which little fishies can smell to get around and their movement and this is a really nice simple clear study and it's been whacked in science a very prestigious journal what got in there because it's showing quite emphatically at least with one species that particulates small bits of plastic 90 micrometers can 
interfere with their ecology, behaviour and hatching rates, all sorts of things. And then you Bad look, news. look at the flow-on effects across the entire food chain and the entire ecosystem. That's right. This it's is pretty one scary. Species. Yeah. And we're talking about tiny, tiny little pieces too. So you've got your big plastics that eventually break down even when they're tiny. In fact, probably even more so when they're tiny. We've got, we've got a real problem, which we know. But yeah. uh, more science. The thing I find very interesting about it, or interesting, fascinating, um, is that a lot of it is coming from Polytech jackets that we wash. Doesn't get filtered when the water goes out. So we have all these tiny little fibrous oh. bits as well as the bits of, you know, the rubber duckies and other bits of plastic which are out there in the ocean which are gradually getting, bro getting broken down. But it comes from all sorts of sources, some mm. that we might not expect. There's a line in this study that says perch exposed to microplastics were eaten by pike four times more quickly than their naturally reared relatives and uh, all of the plastic exposed fish in the study were dead within 48 hours. Yeah. Pretty sobering, isn't it? It is pretty sobering. Mm. You had some news too? I do. I've got a, a positive one and uh, it's to do with... It's a very local one. Thanks to uh, Helen from Mornington who brought us this piece of news from uh, Naruma News. Naruma. Coastal. Thanks, Mum. Um, yes, and this is about grey nurse numbers at Montague Island, which are on the rise, which is a really great thing. Grey nurse sharks. Yes, grey nurse sharks. Uh, one of the most endangered species of shark on the planet. There are only about a 1,000 of them left along the entire east coast of Australia. So pretty scary statistics, but their numbers are increasing. So one of the local divers on the Sapphire Coast up around um, Bermagui, Naruma Way, uh, has documented and identified 41 separate grey nurse sharks just around Montague Island. So 29 females and 12 males. So that's that's good news. Their numbers mm. are on the increase, at least locally in, in one particular area. 1,000 to 1,500 grey nurse sharks remaining on the east coast of Australia. That's not much, is it, Dr Beach? Uh, it's, it's not a lot, no. 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 Anyway, there you go. So it's always good to hear good news. I have one other bit of news. This right. is um, This refers to... Uh, article that I talked about about a month ago, I think I was on the show with Anth, um, about comb jellies um, or tenophores, which are closely related to jellyfish, mm -hmm. type of jellyfish. And I, you know, me just looking at science or it might have been in nature, there was an article, a news item, it wasn't a published, you know, it wasn't a peer-reviewed article, it was a news item referring to stuff that had been presented on a conference where people was, were astounded that comb jellies had been videoed pooping, essentially, that they, in fact, had an anus when that hadn't been expected. Ah. Um, now there's a paper from... Well, a letter to the same journal, Science, that's from a guy called Sydney L. Tam, who's at the Marine, Marine um, Biological Lab in Woods Hole. I actually know Sid pretty well from about 20 years ago. We went hiking and, I, I don't know, he's, he's a lovely guy, venerable old marine biologist. And it says, no surprise... I'm just going to read this out because he's written it so well and mm. I can picture Sid there with his Coke bottle glasses writing this and just getting infuriated. He's a comb jelly expert. It says, no surprise that comb jellies poop. Goes on. As one of the organisers of the recent meeting on comb jellies, brackets, Tina Force, I feel obliged to comment on the news in depth story comb jelly, anus, guts, idea of origin of through gut. Uh, and he refers to where it was published online and then in science. 
with the title, Why Watching Comb Jellies Pooped Has Stunned Evolutionary Biologists. He goes on to say, I was stunned that videos showing defecation of waste through the anal pores of Tina Fors astonished anyone. <laughs> Those who have looked closely at comb jellies have seen and reported this process for well over a century. Wow. He goes on to describe how in 1850, Louis Agassiz found that waste products were expelled from comb jellies through sphincter-like anal pores. And then 30 years later, the German zoologist Karl Chun injected, inf- injected dyes and tracked the waste. Um, and all of this. And so he says, and now it, it is now recognised that Tina Fors expel waste from both ends. They eject bulky indigestible food fragments which do not enter the stomach or food canal system through the mouth. Um, and then his last line is, it should not surprise anyone that comb jellies poop and have a through gut. So this is a very good example of how stuff can slip through the cracks and appear in prestigious journals, which is a lot of rubbish and it gets reported by venerable journalists such as me in great faith. <laughs> so uh, there I am retracting it. Thanks, Sid. Thank you, Dr Beach. Always, it's always good to be corrected. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm. The truth. Yeah. We we'll always... We always seek the truth here on Radio do. Marinara. We do. We go out to peer review before every show and we don't. <laughs> We do our best. If we hey. didn't leave it to the last 10 minutes to prepare, that we probably could. <laughs> we don't. Welcome, without further ado, Neil Blake. Good morning, Neil. Good day. How are you going? Good. How are you? Very good. Happy World Environment Day. Happy World Oceans Day. Mm, fantastic. And Richard Reiner, good morning to you. Morning, Brian. Great having you back. Thank you. We're going to spend the next 10 minutes or so talking about marine science, but also talking about uh, things relating to World Oceans Day, the big focus this year on um, plastics. In healthy, It's interesting with the theme, healthy oceans, uh, healthy planet, but with a focus on plastics in particular and not necessarily all the other things that would contribute to having healthy oceans. Yeah, it's a big, big uh, momentum been building on uh, plastics in particular over the last three or four years, I suppose. Uh, yeah. I guess uh, other parts of the world it might have been uh, a little earlier, quite a bit earlier, but uh, certainly around Australia, uh, things have really uh, moved al- along a lot, mm. and particularly with the uh, Senate inquiry into marine plastic pollutions that was recently completed and the, and the findings of that released hopefully will provide a springboard a springboard for a lot of uh, positive practical action to address the issues. While, while we've started this, is that okay with you, Dr Beach, if we continue with this? Because I'm curious as to what actually came out of this Senate inquiry. I'm completely relaxed here. And I know that Neil's brought, um, Neil's brought quite a lot in. Tell us a bit about the Senate inquiry, Neil, and, and what were the findings that came out of it? Uh, well, there were about 23 recommendations, but I guess the, the, the first one that, I, that struck me was uh, being very significant is the need for any future mitigation on, on the issue to be underpinned by uh, really good, high-quality peer-reviewed research. Uh, so to understand the issues and, and the problem uh, as best as possible is obviously going to uh, give, inform any strategies to do it. So uh, uh, that's really a key point that I'm 
really focusing on is getting community and scientists working together to uh, come up with some really excellent uh, data set. Interested in your response to that, Richard. This has almost become a panel discussion, but we might as well go down this road. Um, Richard and, and Dr Beach as well, both having come being currently in uh, in scientific world, academic world, how do you, how would you respond to that? Obviously in support, but any any kind of ideas on where this might be able to go? Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity for some good research to be done and uh, it certainly is occurring in Australia, in particular in Queensland. Um, Cathy Townsend at, at UQ is, is doing a lot of good work. But Neil and I were just chatting before that, that it's a really good opportunity to get some citizen science involvement as well because um, identifying microplastics in particular from samples is, is the, the sort of task that's kind of within the skill set of most people but requires a huge amount of time. And so with a little bit of training and, and some resources, then a lot of that research can be carried out within the community and, and therefore sort of greater involvement and engagement could actually greatly facilitate collection of the data and an understanding of what the problem is, which otherwise is almost invisible. Mm. Uh, when you see examples like is it Galaxy Zoo where people are identifying galaxies online, then surely, yes, as you've <laughs> said, Richard, when they... Um, are walking along the beach, they can use that those observations that they're making and put those into an app straight away and we get a wonderful collection. So community science is, yeah, a good way to go with this. And so what would be the next step in that, Neil? Is it about establishing sort of more formal partnerships and relationships between academic institutions and community groups? I know they already exist to some degree. Is it, a, is it about expanding that or formalising it? What, what's the next step in this? Well, I think, uh, you know, like there's a certain... Uh, people within the science community who sort of uh, tend to think citizen science is some kind of wacky idea that's uh, uh, really just a waste of time, and there are probably uh, people in the in the general community who think scientists sort of sit somewhere on some uh, ivory tower and they never actually communicate with the rest of the world all that well. You know, so uh, I, there needs to be a realization from both of those polarized views that. that that they can actually con contribute to some really good collaborative work, it, it provided that there's uh, clear communication and understanding on what needs to happen. So uh, I, we need to have a good conversation. Mm. Mm. It, it's the sort of thing where baseline data collection is well within the reach of most people. Um, understanding subsequent kind of ecological and physiological consequences to animals and plants of plastics pollution is scientifically a more challenging question and then that's where the trained scientists need to take the lead but in terms of identifying the scope and the location and, and size of the problem then many many people can contribute and you know gain and learn a lot at the same time. And then once you have those forces joined together then you start looking to solutions you have people like Boyan Slat who's kind of going leaps and bounds up in the northern hemisphere with what he's doing but to actually have that ground level support and that groundswell as well that's I can see where this can potentially go what is it going to take to get us there do you think is it uh, is it funding is it appropriate distribution of funding is it involvement in government in some way what I'm just really interested in your thoughts on this um well, for me, I, I, I look at climate, I look at the way the world is being damaged, climate change, or, you know, increasing concentrations of carbon dioxide, more pollution, all sorts of things. And you would think we had successfully got the message out there enough now to change things, but things really aren't changing a lot. So I, excuse me for being a little bit pessimistic, but to 
get this going. I don't, I don't know what we need. I, I, I'm continually frustrated at the lack of movement in the areas which to me and to a lot of other people seem very, very important. Yeah, and it's not just you. I think we're feeling that um, more and more so across all sorts of different groups and across all sorts of different levels. Um, Tim Flannery wrote a piece this week in The Age talking about his recent trip diving up in the Great Barrier Reef and how devastated he was just to draw that comparison from when he was there last time and realising how slow things are actually changing. And it's all, of course, when we know... Well, how this rapidly it's, it's changing for well, the how rapidly, on the reef, but yes, how slow attitudes are changing. That's right. And mm. and action too. It's it's uh, And again, we've, we're kind of constrained by these short-term political cycles that, that drive and at the same time um, restrict real action on this. Mm. Well, I guess that's one of the reasons why I'm very uh, keen on citizen science is because uh, political action will only come if the general public is engaged in the topic. And so if people aren't connected and they don't actually understand or have any sort of even idea that there's an issue, then uh, the politics will just grind on as ever. It's Mm. business as usual. So we really do need to connect a larger group of people. Richard, is this, is this come down to academic institutions that need to take the lead on this and join with community groups, or is it who takes the lead on this? Well, I suppose it has to be joint effort um, at all levels, community interest and, and scientific integration or engagement with the community, and, and the legislative change has to come with it. And Neil's exactly right that, that uh, it needs to be driven by the broader community and... and I can see it, you know, I've had the fortune to work with, with many charismatic animals, sea turtles and sharks and penguins and so on. And sometimes you just need one or two examples that people really identify with and think, well, this is terrible, we have to do something about it. And if you provide them the mechanism or the vehicle to become involved through some sort of community science, then you can kind of get some momentum going and a bit of critical mass that then influences the political discussion and hopefully results in some more significant change. But to do it alone by any individual research institution or community group or conservation group is is almost impossible. And you identified, you know, the short-term political cycle is a real obstacle to work like this. But people have long memories and, and if they pressure their local members then that can translate into something more significant That's right. in terms of governmental policy change. And community groups aren't driven by political cycles, are they? And academic institutions aren't either. So no, exactly. we can kind of break through those barriers. Yeah. Neil, anything else of note to come out of the inquiry? Uh, well, I guess one thing to note is that a key point that seemed to be uh, overlooked was in discussing recommendations around source reduction because that's what it comes down to it's got to be reduced at the source and uh, there really was very limited attention to that Um, so the other key point i suppose is that any changes that are going to be um, brought about such as banning of plastic bags which was uh, recommended uh, the shopping bags be banned but all this is going to be left up to the states uh, and the um, the environment minister's gatherings to to come up with some mechanisms. So the federal government still hasn't really taken a strong lead, even though they're pointing at issues fairly clearly, but that's still going to be left up to more (laughs) argy-bargy. And so it's a bit of a concern that uh, nothing much will happen. Do we give up? 
on the on the federal scene and just go for the local solutions and kind of put this together like a jigsaw puzzle. We kind of get a piece happening here and a piece happening there and then eventually just join it all up together. Well, I think my, personally that, you know, one thing I've observed is there's a number of different uh, methods that have been uh, uh, utilised by different groups and devised to actually do audits of uh, plastics pollution uh, and we need to actually come up with a more national approach so that uh, we're all talking from the, the same sort of methods and uh, have a much stronger message getting through that way rather than the white noise. That's right, but that's where that difference between national and federal comes in. So national yeah. is the whole country banding together, whereas federal is, is this kind of oversight role that the Commonwealth Government yeah. has. But Maybe it needs to be a national the solution. The community needs to actually take a national approach. Though, that's right, and not, not worry about the federal approach, which just isn't, hasn't delivered and most well, likely won't. Making some good good suggestions. We've got a, a charismatic animal here too, Dr. Beach. I think he's he's going to take the lead on this. I don't know about that, Neil. <laughs> but but uh, you, you're talking about local and national, and it's also global, of course. Yes. Um, it's I mean, we're dealing with stuff which is chucked off ships, with, you know, plastic bottles that you know we chuck in the water with alacrity, but other people do as well. So, at all these different levels getting together, which is. Why, unfortunately, I'm pessimistic, but, you know, that's just probably because I played Chris Christopherson Sunday morning coming yeah. down. And Buddy Wilson. And Buddy, was it Buddy Wilson? <laughs> or was it Buddy Miller. Hi, I'm David Suzuki, and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR 102.7 FM. Indeed you are. Dr Beach. Yeah, Keflopods. Let's do some science. Let's do some science. This is a paper which appeared in um, the journal Current Biology uh, from... A group, uh, well, Zoe Doubleday and Bronwyn Gillanders, who are at the ah, University of Adelaide. That's Galanders. Gal- well, I used to know Galand- her. Galanders. <laughs> She's okay. a great scientist. All these corrections. I love when people correct me and I have to be corrected. Um, on global prol- proliferation of cephalopods or cephalopods, some people might pronounce it. These are squids, octopuses, cuttlefish and their relatives. And we've been talking about the, the health of the, the environment, the health of the oceans, and we are seeing depletion in fish stocks, plastics going to the ocean, all sorts of degradation. Uh, but apparently the, the cephalopods, the squids, octopuses and the, um, and the cuttlefish are doing okay. Um, Zoe and Bronwyn and collaborators, there's about six or seven other people on this paper, have taken data, looked at the data which has been accumulated over the last 61 years, um, mostly from fisheries catch, but I'll talk to this later how they've kind of modulated that data so it's not those data so it's not it's not biased as to new techniques that people are using or anything to catch these things um, but they're showing that numbers are increasing and numbers are pretty pretty good so the question is why are the numbers of cuttlefish squids octopuses increasing in the light of having fish decreasing generally and other species short lifespan maybe something to do with it and richard Jump in, feel free to jump in here as well as a, as a card-carrying, practising marine biologist. Um, short lifespan, um, it might be that there's less predation upon them from the fish that we are catching, reducing those numbers. So they're being freed from, you know, little squid are being freed from being munched up by other organisms, by other fish. Are they potentially just physically more resilient as well to changes going on? Um, having a short lifespan means that you can evolve quicker. Right, and breed, and breed more quickly as well. Breed more quickly as well. And it also... yeah, and, But indeed, they could also potentially be more resilient, so more plastic in their you know, 
development, you know, the way they can cope with various things. There's also the possibility that uh, there's some release of ecological competition, that they are competing for some of the same resources that many of the fish stocks that have declined were competing for. So mm. there's a bit of an ecological space that they can move into and have taken advantage of, of that availability. That's right, yeah. So not only are there less predators around for them, but there's less, yeah, there's more opportunity for them to, mm. to eat. So this is, this is kind of good news. And one might think that looking at, if you're just taking data from catch rates and looked at that over the last 60 years and people are catching more of these organisms, then that could be biased on the technique that people are using. So if you're you know, developing your fisheries and you've got much bigger boats and you're better at it, then of course you're going to be catching more than you were 30, 40 years ago. What they've done very nicely in this paper is that they've controlled their, their data analysis um, in that they're looking at particular types of fisheries. So they've looked at the, say, for example, um, traditional methods and in particular places in the world and how they might have, well, how they have indeed increased their catch rate using those same traditional methods. And then they look at high-end um, sort of big scale fishing and how that has increased catch rates as well. They've looked at, the, and this is, these are global, these numbers that come from all the different oceans of the world. Um, they've looked at many, many different species, 35 species or genera from six families. Uh, they've looked at demersal species, that is ones that hang around near the bottom and the ones that truly hang around the bottom as well as the pelagic ones, such as uh, the little squids. One other paper that I'd like to just briefly mention while we're talking about cephalopods is one which has been published in the Journal of Zoology um, about giant squid. And this has um, been published by Charles Paxton from the University of St Andrews in the United Kingdom. And what he has done is he's looked at giant squids, all sorts of stories about giant squids, sperm whales and how big they can be, and there are anecdotal stories of them being 25 metres or 30 metres long. This is going from the tip of the animal all the way down to the end of the tentacle. So they've got six arms and they've got two big tentacles which are really long and they've got this mantle. So imagine calamari squid that you see, that you buy. You know, the main thing is the mantle. So you can look at that or you can increase, you can you know, take the length from going all the way down to the tentacles. Um, this guy has um, looked at anecdotal evidence, kind of shoved that aside. Some people say they might be 25 metres in length, which is just huge. Um, some people say even 30 metres. Um, he's looked at the specimens that we actually have in museums um, and he's looked at video evidence and he's extrapolated that. So he's, he's used all these established relationships between the measurements such as length of the whole body, the mantle and the beak. And the beak, by the way, is the little um, kind of mouthpiece that they have in there. Um, and they can turn up in sperm whale guts, so you can measure those and then extrapolate the whole size of the animal. Uh, but what he's done is that he's est estimated that plausibly the ones that um, could be out there that we still haven't found are 20 metres long. Wow. In total length, which is quite huge. That's a big squid. Uh, yeah, and these are not even the biggest squids. They're the squids. There are colossal squids out there, which were uh, even bigger. Actually, an interesting thing about the beak is that that's how you identify the squid species that's been eaten by somebody else. Oh, really? Because you imagine you've got an animal, whether it's a whale or a penguin or whatever, that's eaten a squid. The squid gets digested and just turns into mush, but the beak remains because mm. it's a very hard structure and the beak of each species looks a little bit different. So with the right ID key, if you get a sample of what the animal's eaten and the beak is in there, then you can work out not only what species it was, but from the size of the beak you can get some idea of how big the squid was. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. And these, of course, turn up in sperm whale guts. And yes. they've also 
He's also had, had a bit of a go at trying to figure out what's the largest size giant squid which can be eaten by a sperm whale. And he's come up with about nine metres for that. So there are bigger ones out there which can't be eaten by sperm whales. They're just too big for the whales to get. The, ri- the rise and rise of the cephalopod. The rise and rise of the cephalopod. One really interesting, I'll just, just bear with me for a minute, but one really interesting quote. So he said there's a number of ways in which we can measure the size of giant squids. And one of them is to estimation of the, um, of the length from the sucker scars on whales. Right. So these things grappling with whales, you get this beautiful image and the sucker scars on the whales, you can use that. But he's kind of chucked that out of the... Out out with the bathwater because it's um, it's a little bit unreliable. I've just noticed the title of this particular article. It's Unleashing the Kraken. Unleashing the Kraken on the maximum <laughs> length in giant squid <laughs> Arctitoothus. And this is in the Journal of Zoology for those who want to search it out. Nice. Just appeared. Th- thank you, Dr Beach. Pleasure. Very, uh, very informative and entertaining. And uh, I love it there. And penguins. Penguins are so sensitive to his needs. Are they sensitive to your needs, Richard Reiner? Um, I don't know. I haven't asked them. (laughs) (laughs) I guess they are. And you too, Neil Blake, because you're from down that way from St Kilda. Yeah, I learnt uh, the front and back end of a penguin many years ago. (laughs) On the St Kilda breakwater. Did you get a little nip? Uh, quite a few, actually. Okay. So, Richard, you've come in, we've been talking about all kinds of different things, but specifically today to talk about um, some research into the little penguins and St Kilda specifically. Yes, it, and it's a fascinating story, and I imagine many Melburnians are aware that there's a colony out at St Kilda, but probably not aware of how unusual that situation is to have an established colony of a native animal so close to an urban environment and using a piece of water as in Port Phillip Bay that's so heavily impacted by human use. And the origin of the colony itself was a fascinating story in that there there were no penguins there until probably the early 70s. Maybe, Neil, you, you might have a finer date on that, but at least that's when they were being seen because the breakwater at St Kilda, the yacht squadron there, was built for the Melbourne Olympics. Oh, right. And um, presumably birds coming from Phillip Island were in Port Phillip Bay and found the breakwater and saw that it was a, a good place to nest ah. because in amongst the rocks there are many crevices and holes and burrows that they can go into and that are safe from predation and safe from the weather and so on. And so this uh, is a splinter group that's come from Phillip Island and got itself established in the 1950s and stayed there. Is, is that what you're saying? Yes. Wow. Yes. So, so the breakwater was built in the 50s, but then when the penguins first arrived, I'm not sure that anybody really two knows. Two pairs recorded in 1974. Yes. Right. Okay. So they, so they may have been there for a little while beforehand but that's when things started to kick off and clearly it was an environment that suited them so now the now the colony is is well over a thousand birds and and they're nesting regularly um, the colony has grown constantly or continuously throughout that time and they're making use of the fa- this sort of anthropogenic that's human built structure mm. as a uh, as a nesting location um, the origin of the colony, uh, my understanding is that it's a, a splinter from from, um, from Phillip Island. Island. Yep. And I'm not sure if anyone's done the genetics. So someone probably that, that, has. I was about to ask that question. Well, I would. Th- I'd have to check with my with my colleague Andre from Phillip Island Nature Park. I'm sure he could answer that question. But I'm sorry, I don't know the answer. Goodness, mm. good honours project. If no one's done it yet. Yeah, I, I would think it's, it's probably such an obvious question. It must yeah, have been done, yeah. and I'm embarrassed that I don't, <laughs> that I don't know the answer. And, and Richard and Neil, are, are, is this the only colony that we have in Port Phillip Bay? 
there are there's been uh, incidents of um, uh, odd breeding, you know, just one or two pairs uh, on places like Mud Island, for example. And uh, people sometimes say, "Oh, there's I saw some down there, you know, growing." Green Point in Brighton, but the, in terms of a colony that's actually been recorded as um, viable and permanent, uh, it seems that St Kilda's the place. Yeah. Mm. One of the, the key reasons, I think, is that there's been really heavy community involvement and management and protection of the colony at the breakwater. So Earthcare St Kilda is the volunteer organisation that undertakes routine monitoring and uh, they run guides for people... Uh, guided tours for people during the summer months during the breeding season and take responsibility for then sort of ongoing monitoring of the colony and, and that protection and, and investment I think is is largely responsible for an ongoing well-maintained colony. And I just highlight the, the combination of scientific expertise and citizen uh, action was really the basis of the success of the St Kilda Penguin Colony. Mm. It's a perfect case in point, mm. isn't it? Do the guided tours occur through the winter months as well? And do the penguins come ashore each night the way that they do down at Phillip Island? In answer to your first question, I don't think so. Um, Earthcare St Kilda could, could answer that question. So anyone who wants to know about Earthcare can just go to the, the website earthcarestkilda.org.au and find out all the information they want. Um, but penguins are coming ashore all the time. The thing is that you will often not see them because um, they hop out of the water and unlike Phillip Island where they have a bit of a, a walk mm. to get to the burrows, at St Kilda they're right there right. and they'll disappear into a burrow. So if you're not on the spot, you may not see them. But during summer when there's breeding going on, birds will be out kind of socialising with each other on the top of the breakwater and chicks come out of the burrows and, and spend some time outside and that's when they're more easily visible. Mm. So we've done quite a lot of work over the years at, at the colony there in understanding how they use Port Phillip Bay. So we've used satellite trackers and GPS trackers to understand their foraging ranges and they stick fairly close to the colony uh, and when they're looking for chicks they can only make uh, sorry when they're looking after chicks they can only make fairly short trips and that means they can't exit Port Phillip Bay so this is kind of in a way the cost of exploiting this environment that they're they're limited they can't go out into the open ocean so whatever happens in Port Phillip Bay determines their food supply and their environmental conditions so through GPS and satellite technology we've now got quite a good understanding of of where they forage and it seems for example that the outflow from the Yarra River has a heavy impact on where they go and in drought years they stick closer to the mouth of the Yarra. In years of more rain they'll disperse more widely because the nutrients that are carried out by the Yarra River are quite important as kind of building the base for the food, the fish prey that the penguins eat. Um, they appear to use the shipping channels possibly as a bit of a physical barrier to, um, to trap fish against the side. And they're amazingly tuned in to then these environmental changes that occur within the bay and they modify their foraging strategies depending on the prey that's available um, and, and have this, this sort of exquisite relationship with changing environment and plastic that is flexible behaviour uh, that's, again, contributed to the success of the colony. Mm. But having said that, it's not that they're sort of immune to environmental change because um, when there are poor conditions and, and, for example, when anchovy in particular in the bay declines, then the, the penguins take a bit of a, a reproductive hit and their reproductive success in those years drops pretty dramatically. Mm. It was interesting back in the 1990s when the uh, pilchard 
a virus hit uh, a particular age class of pilchards right across su southern Australia, and the um, St Kilda penguins population halved in in that, in that one year. We didn't see a penguin in St Kilda for about three months. So, but clearly the anchovies though seem to be a key prey species. Yeah. Did the I'm just thinking about the timing of stopping the scallop dredging as well. That would have been around the mid 90s. I'm wondering if that contributed to their recovery. Uh, well, actually, one of the key things that changed um, as a result of the pilchard virus is that the commercial fishing fleet was uh, harvesting uh, for pet food, uh, ceased fishing, and then they didn't continue from that point on, as far as I'm aware. Mm. And uh, the population of, from the penguins escalated significantly mm. from that point. Richard, um, we were mentioning while the um, track was on before, there's a, an event coming up. Yes, yeah, so Earthcare is the group that, that I work with that's monitoring the penguins. They're always looking for volunteers. They're looking for people interested in doing the guiding. And they're holding um, a bit of a symposium about the research work that's been done at, out at the colony that's uh, now been going nearly 30 years. So that's on the 27th of August. And um, from 10 till 4, all people are welcome and uh, interested people should, should have a visit of the website. I had a look at the website yesterday and it doesn't seem to be up there yet so maybe wait a few days and, and the details will be up there for, for August events. But that's a good way of seeing the work that's happened because there's been a lot of fascinating research that sort of really underscored then the importance of maintaining the health of Port Phillip Bay, not only for the multitude of recreational uses that people have and for commercial fishing and recreational fishing, but also for the impact that it has on the native animals and that, uh, that rely on it. And it's so, that's exactly right, and it's so important to recognise that there are native animals there and yes. they're doing well and we need to continue to support mm -hmm. that. Thank you, Richard. My pleasure. Hey, this is Gary Clark Jr. and you're listening to Triple R 102.7. Coming up to eight minutes to ten, you are listening to Radio Marinara on 3 R. We're covering everything from comb jellies and now all the way through to uh, the largest of uh, charismatic megafauna, the whales, and crossing to speak with uh, Dave Donnelly, who is a marine scientist uh, working in Victoria. He specialises in cetaceans and he's involved in an event happening next weekend uh, along with the Dolphin Research Institute and Phillip Island Nature Parks to do with the winter whales coming into Western Port. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Bron. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. My first time. Uh, well, you're very welcome. And I understand you know at least one of our uh, people in the studio today, uh, Richard Reiner from Monash University. Yes, good morning, Richard. G'day, Dave. How are you? I'm well. Isn't that, that great thing? We've been talking a lot on today's program about, about our networks and particularly the networks between um, academic institutions and community groups. And I think what's happening next weekend is a really good example of that. Um, tell us a bit about the, uh, the Winter Whale Weekend and, and what you know about whales in Western Port. Sure, Bron. Well, the Winter Whale Weekend is, has been born from um, the Two Bays Whale Project, which is a citizen science uh, community engagement project uh, looking for help with people registering whale sightings around uh, Barwon Heads through to Inverloch, including both the bays. And uh, it just came to be that we would uh, decide to put together a community event which allowed people to engage with scientists on the ground, uh, watch uh, subject movies, uh, perhaps even take a whale cruise, listen to a presentation and also attend education programs for kids with an inflatable whale. 
Now, you've actually got... Um, there's a flyer which you sent through to me and there's a photo, and I'm assuming... I've, I've got to assume this is not Photoshopped in any way. It's a photo of a whale tail actually going down with the knobbies in the background. There are whales in Western Port and this, is, this has been a really interesting program today of discovery. We've just been learning all kinds of um, information about the penguins at St Kilda. There are whales in Western Port. There is. The whales do pass through Western Port. It, it's not an area where you'd find uh, whales carving or necessarily feeding, but they certainly do pass through at certain times of the year. And those times are between sort of June and um, oh, we get a, we get a bit of a drop off around the end of August, and they start to come back through around December through to February as they're making their way south back to the Antarctic. Let's talk to uh, next focus on next weekend's activities. So this is across the entire Queen's birthday weekend, um, June 11 to June 13. What's happening on uh, the Saturday? Let's start with that one. There's a wildlife information session. Yes, we've got a few things going on on the Saturday. We've got uh, the Whale Watch Cruise, which uh, circumnavigate off the island with Wildlife Coast Cruises. We also have presentations in the afternoon at uh, the Nobby Centre where we'll be uh, talking about whale ecology and whales local to Victorian waters. And in the morning, I think uh, actually it's around one o'clock in the afternoon, uh, a presentation by an ecologist um, from the Phillip Island Nature Park talking about the Antarctic. So that's our Saturday program. And then um, through, to, through Sunday, again, whale cruises, uh, more in community engagement, and uh, then a screening of two movies, one being Oceans by Galatay, which was uh, shot around partially shot around Victoria, Port Phillip and Western Port, um, particularly Flinders and Rye areas, and uh, followed by Sonic Sea, which is a new uh, movie about the acoustic disturbance that we're creating in the oceans and how that might relate to uh, cetaceans. Have you uh, actually seen that movie yet, Dave? I have. I had a pre-screening and uh, it is very informative. It's all science-based and it talks about um, the, the, the effects of military sonar, um, seismic exploration, shipping traffic, all sorts of things, and uh, the, the consequences of those activities in the oceans to whales and dolphins who essentially communicate and see using sound. So you can imagine what it's like talking in a loud, a loud room. It's often very difficult to hear the person speaking to you. You often have to raise your voice, and eventually, sometimes you give up. And for some animals, that might be the case in the wild. And so this is taking place next Sunday, so Sunday 12th of June uh, in Cowles, uh, Phillip Island Leisure Centre. So that's at the YMCA, is that right? That's correct. That's where the, uh, the activities will be for the ed, ed session and the uh, Parish Hall of 102 Thompson Avenue for the movies. And then uh, you've also got, you mentioned earlier, um, the whale cruises. Tell us a little bit about those and when are they going to be available? Uh, the whale cruises run, run from 9 o'clock to 1pm and uh, they're run by Wildlife Coast Cruises, and they're a circumnavigator of Phillip Island. They visit the seal colony, obviously, uh, and then they look for whales along the known pathway. Uh, it seems that they really enjoy work, uh, moving along the contours that uh, they head around the knobbies and out towards the east, towards Cape Patterson and beyond. So uh, with some predictability, but then, of course, we're with nature, so there's no guarantees, but um, we're hopeful that we'll be able to get good weather and lots of whales. And, I, and again, the sightings are are coming through already. Yesterday we had a sighting, the day before, the day before that. So the, the whales are certainly starting to make their way up. Uh, 2015 saw 87 sightings wow. in the two bays. Uh, and in total, we've had 419 sightings, sightings um, since uh, records were starting to be more vigilantly kept since 2000. So uh, there, there's certainly whales present in, in Western Port, Port Phillip and surrounding waters, and they would be humpback whales, southern right whale, pygmy blue whales, and the odd minky whale. And of course, my favourite, the killer whales.
David's Richard here. I just wanted to comment that, you know, hearing about all these things, it, it's so fantastic that maybe people don't appreciate how fortunate we are in Australia and, and particularly in this part of Australia to have all of these animals so close by that, that everyday people could go out and, and have a look at. And, you know, I remember when we, you and I were out in Port Phillip Bay looking for dolphins. You know, what sort of experience is that? And, and yet anyone really with a little bit of time and who can go on a tour or has a boat can see the same. And, and, and here we've got whales in easy reach. Absolutely, Richard. You're 100% correct. And I remember our day on the water. Um, the, the good thing about the Phillip Island region and the coast between Phillip Island and, and Port Phillip is that there's lots of high elevation. So people can uh, view out to sea looking for whales and we have a, a, a real-time notification so people can duck out to the cliffs with a pair of binoculars and watch whales go past. And you're absolutely right. It's a real privilege and it's something that perhaps may not have been available to us uh, in the 70s and 80s with the, uh, the closure of industrial whaling. But uh, since the populations have started to come, started to come back, we found that more accessibility to the animals is now available through the uh, through high ground uh, elevation areas where we can view them, and also for those of us lucky enough to have boats on boats. But I must add to that that uh, in Victoria there are regulations which state people must stay away at least 200 metres when within a boat around whales. Yes, and it's always important to get that message out there too, Dave. It's something that we, we hear about all the time anecdotally that there are people out there on boats and on jet skis who don't uh, abide by those regulations. So uh, just uh, lastly, we're about to run out of time. Just uh, if people want more information on next weekend's activities, where can they go? Well, we have a Facebook page called the Two Bays Whale Project. They can sign up to that where we'll, they'll get real-time notifications of sightings as well as uh, activity events or... You can go to the Winter Whale Weekend Facebook page. All inquiries can be directed to Wildlife Coast Cruises for bookings uh, aboard their vessel, Casey Lee. Thanks so much, Dave. It's been great having you on the program. And uh, we'll catch up with you again because I'm really keen to hear more about the whales of Western Port and uh, continue this discussion into the future. Good on you. Thanks, Brian. And thank you, Richard. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Catch you again. And that brings us to the end of Radio Marinara. Many thanks to uh, to our guest today, Richard. Thanks so much for coming My in. My pleasure. Thank you, Neil. As always, thank you, Dr Beach. Pleasure. Thank you, Kath, who's been panelling for us. Thank you, Kent, who's been out in the green room. Next week, uh, Dr Beach, you're going to be back in. With Dr Surf. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. Stay tuned for Radiotherapy. We will catch you next week. Have a good one. This has been Radio Marinara. Bye for now. University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R Sponsors. <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.